Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Protein is a food group we all know about and are striving to get more of in our diet as it does have major benefits for health. But are you struggling to find easy, affordable and quick ways of doing this? When we consider where our protein comes from, often the first thing that jumps into our mind would be beef, chicken, eggs, fish, but there are, however, so many options available for you to choose from, and this includes yogurt, which can be a high source of protein as well. Yo Valley have done just that with their super thick kerned yogurt, with two different varieties containing nine and 10 grams of protein per 100 grams. So for a straightforward and definitely inexpensive way to incorporate more protein into your diet, especially at the start of your day, Yo Valley's Super Thick Kern Yogurt could be that daily boost that you're after. Consider Yo Valley's Super Thick Kerned Natural Yogurt. This is high in protein, low in sugar, and it's available in 5% and 0% fat. To find out more, head to yovalley.co.uk and find it in your local supermarket. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, best-selling author of Renourish, a simple way to eat well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode, I'm so lucky to be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with the trusted expert advice. Aging is a completely natural part of life, but that doesn't mean it's always pleasant. If you're worried about losing your youthful looks, then you're definitely not alone. Thankfully, though, there are some things that we can do without destroying the bank account or resorting to getting surgery, like taking attentive care of your skin and changing up your lifestyle. This week's Food for Thought sees leading dermatologist Dr. Anjali Marto and I explore how we can look and feel our best. Hello, Anjali. Hi, Ree. Hi. Um, lovely to remotely speak with you today. Thank you so much for giving up your afternoon. Oh, no, I really appreciate you asking me back, actually. So thank you. I know you're one of our second guests on the podcast. You've been on twice now. It's very exciting. And I think because people wanted to hear this topic, I just had to get it in the lineup for season seven. It's something that everybody asks. And I'm sure when they walk into your clinic, it's probably one of the biggest questions that you get. Like, how do you make your face look younger? That's right. It's it's a common concern and I think becoming increasingly so as we're spending so much more time on smartphones, but also more recently with the viral pandemic, looking at ourselves on Zoom for long periods of time as well. I hadn't even thought about that looking on Zoom. Gosh, it's so interesting. And and is that is there a trick? Is there something people can do with that kind of thing? Like should they wear less makeup? Is that gonna help or 
Yeah, so makeup's often a, a big thing that kind of gets asked. And I, I always feel with this that if you want to wear makeup and it makes you feel better and it makes you feel confident, there's no reason why you shouldn't. The key thing is that you're making sure that you're cleansing and you're taking it off properly at the end of the day. Yeah, it's definitely the uh, the skin routine, which I'm sure we're definitely going to get into. So where do we start? I mean, to see big changes in our skin, what kind of beauty regime do we need? And is it different for men and women? Okay, so I think fundamentally, if we just look at the kind of gender differences to begin with, essentially, the skin of men and women is the same, you know, the layers are the same. But the one thing that you will notice is because men have more hair follicles on their face, um, they tend to have more supported collagen that protein that will give your skin its support structure. So rather annoyingly, what it means is men tend to age better than women because they have more collagen to begin with in their skin. Combined, yes, uh, sorry, combined with that, it's also regular shaving, which is exfoliating the skin as well. So whilst the skin types are similar, men will age better. That's so unfair. I mean, no offense, of course, there's probably going to be some men listening to this as well, I hope, but lucky, lucky you, obviously. And is there something we can look out for? What are the first obvious signs of aging? So if we look at what happens when the skin ages, um, you've got the external changes that we see in terms of fine lines, wrinkles, pigmentation, and uneven skin tone. And people can start noticing those changes as early as probably their mid to late 20s if they've got very fair skin. The changes come a little bit later in darker skin types, so skin of colour, and then you'll start noticing that more probably around your, your early 30s to mid 30s because darker skin is relatively protected because of melanin, that pigment that gives our skin its colour. That's so interesting. Yeah, a lot of my friends that have gorgeous different shades and tones of coloured skin, I mean, yeah, their skin looks, it just looks healthier as well. A lot of it, actually, it does come down to the fact that it's just more resilient to the effects of sunlight. So about 80 to 90% of the things that we associate with skin aging, so the lines, the wrinkles, the pigmentation changes, occur directly because of ultraviolet light from the sun. And the more pigment you've got, the more protection you've effectively got against sunlight. So if you look at black skin, the average um, sort of sun protection factor you've got because of the skin itself is about 134 compared to white skin, which is about 3.4. So numerically, I think that demonstrates the difference quite nicely. It is a big percentage, and it definitely does show. So would you say, as well as there being a gender difference then, when it comes to a beauty regime, does that mean that people with darker coloured skin should have a different beauty regime to people with lighter coloured skin? So this is a good question, actually. So what I would say is the routine fundamentally needs to be the same. But what you might notice is that you need to start it at different ages. The second thing that I would say is if you look at facial aging, skin of colour ages in a very different way to, to fair skin. And what you'll notice with fair skin types is often it'll be around the eyes or the forehead, the upper part of the face where you will notice the aging process begin. So forehead lines or number 11 lines where you kind of, you know, if you're frowning at the screen or lines around the eyes. But in darker skin, they're relatively protected from that upper face changing. But what you notice is changes in the mid face. And often black and Asian skin, the skin starts to descend. I hate the word saggy, but you start to notice the lines between the nose and the mouth, the nasolabial folds, 
much more early on. So from a practical point of view, what I notice with my fair patients is they often need treatments like Botox before they need filler. On the other hand, if it's a skin of color patient, they're probably going to need filler before they need Botox. So I'm going to get into filler and um, Botox in a minute because that's fascinating. I, I don't think we treat people when we're looking at the media and we're looking at skin and beauty regimes. It always does seem to be a one size fits all approach on advertising. And it's just the same in the nutrition world. People, you know, pedal push diet plans, but actually it should all be very bespoke. And I'm sure... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for your line of work, it must be incredibly frustrating when you get this one size fits all approach and you see clients and you think, well, hang on, actually, this isn't taking your unique factors into account. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I feel very, very cautious about because sometimes you can get people that will come into clinic and they will say, I want X treatment doing. But when you look at their face and you look at the balance and the harmony and the symmetry, they don't actually need the treatment they think they do. They need something else. So it's just about having that conversation about, I think, what's helpful describing what is going on in their individual face that is making their face potentially look maybe look more tired or not as youthful as they remember it and then working backwards. So I, I agree there is an issue. The second thing I think is a lot of people will go to social media to find the best person for their treatments and before and after photos. And one of my bugbears with that is, you know, if you've got a Instagram page full of before and after of lip fillers, let's say, it will hone in on the area that's been treated. But what you don't know is what those lips look like on the full face beforehand and afterwards. So it's, you know, very, very small bits of the face that we're seeing. And again, you're not seeing the wider picture. So I would advise caution against that. Yes, uh, I think social media has a lot to answer for in the beauty world. I mean, it does with every industry, but particularly with beauty, I think it can be extremely damaging. And our lifestyle must be, I guess, another factor because social media, again, is dangerous because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know what somebody's doing. Do exercise regimes and air pollution, do they also have an impact? Oh, absolutely. So if we look firstly at pollution, you know, I mean, we both live in London, we live in a city that we know is polluted, but your skin is basically, it's a barrier. It's your your first line defense of keeping good things in and bad things out. And pollution is going to be the biggest target for your skin. So things like, you know, nitrous oxide, things like sort of tar, all those things that, you know, are released from car exhaust and all the rest of it. Studies do show that when they interact with the skin, they can lead to premature skin aging. So what that what will happen is a lot of pollution or air pollution in particular will create the generation of these harmful molecules known as free radicals. And free radicals can directly damage the DNA, the fats, the lipids in our skin cells, leading to signs of premature skin aging. So again, the the fine lines, the the deeper, coarser wrinkles, potentially some sagging of the skin, as well as that uneven skin texture or pigmentation. So, you know, using antioxidants, for example, in a skincare routine can be beneficial in basically neutralizing those free radicals that pollution will generate. Oh, it's fascinating. Pollution. We did we did a whole podcast episode on pollution and it's just tragic actually the impact that it does have. i I'm even now aware of my um my newborn and going out with him in the sling instead of the pram 
for the impact the fumes are going to have on his lungs, let alone I hadn't even thought about his precious little skin. There's, there's so yeah. much. I mean, what about the genetic side of things then? Is that also, has that got something to do with it? Yeah, big part, actually. You know, I think we all have at least that one friend that they can wash their face with soap and water or they can <laughs> never wash their face at all or they can fall asleep with their makeup on and their skin is still perfect. Yeah. So genetics do have a large part to play. You know, chances are that if you have got first degree relatives, i.e. mum or dad, that have aged well, chances are you probably will as well. On the other hand, if you've got a first degree relative that may have a skin condition, a chronic inflammatory skin condition, like say acne or rosacea, which can create redness, it does increase your likelihood of getting it as well. So whilst there are things we can change, like some of our lifestyle factors, mm. the genetics and, you know, that's that's our luck of the draw. That's what we're stuck with, that we're working with. And some people are genetically blessed when it comes to their skin. Yeah, it's so important to just take a step back and acknowledge what you have and try and work on other areas. Just I think acceptance is a big part of it as well. I mean, it must be infuriating to um, have a predisposition to things like um, you said quite rightly, um, allergies or eczema or some, something in the skin that you know you've inherited. But if you look at the other things, so what would you say are the biggest lifestyle factors people can change? Is it is it sleep? Would it be stress? I mean, sleep's definitely a big one. Um, you know, from around 2000 or so, we've actually recognized that your, your skin cells have got a biological rhythm or a 24-hour clock or circadian rhythm. So our skin cells aren't doing the same thing in the morning as they're doing in the evening. They, they show patterns and variation. And whilst we sleep at nighttime, you know, there is genuine truth in the fact that that is when our skin cells are repairing and they're regenerating. So, you know, having like the odd night of a lack of sleep is not going to be an issue. But chronic lack of sleep, you know, disturbing patterns over a long period of time. Absolutely. Your skin's circadian rhythms will actually become disrupted as a result of that. And that can lead to issues with repair mechanisms and regeneration of the skin. So, you know, where possible, getting a good night's sleep is absolutely essential. And then stress is the other big one. You know, I mean, how does one remove stress from modern day life? It's virtually impossible to do so. But we do know that stress will activate hormones such as cortisol that can lead to inflammation in the skin. So they can cause flare ups of things like acne, eczema, psoriasis, rosacea. So we recognize that as well. Um, removing stress, though, you know, how does one do that? You've got to find a method that works for you. Oh, gosh. When you said sleep, I was suddenly thinking, oh, no, I am doomed, Angelique, because I don't think I've slept more than three to four hours in about two months in one go because of the baby. So all parents pretty much have a time period then when their skin's going to suffer a bit, because I do notice it's it's definitely more dehydrated, I think. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting, actually, because, you know, I was saying the skin has got 24 hour cycles. Well, often what you can notice is increased water loss through your skin surface at nighttime. If you're, you know, up for longer at night, it is possible you are just losing a lot of water through the skin. It's so true. So is there something that you must get asked as well? As a dermatologist, you must get asked nutritional questions. Sure. Yes. I think every industry get, gets asked those sorts of things. But there are genuine links, aren't there, between food and your skin? 
There are. And I'm always quite cautious in answering this because I think one of the things that has happened as people have started to take such an interest in lifestyle and nutrition is often this idea of a superfood for the skin is is sold to us. You know, if you have a load of blueberries, suddenly X problem is going to get better. And and we both know that's not the case. Eating well for your skin is eating well for your general health. You know, if you're following a diet that is good in vitamins and minerals, in your fatty acids, that's going to be good not just for your skin, but for your heart and your lungs and your kidneys and every other part of your body. So yes, there are, you know, key things that the skin needs to function. But I think that we we're looking at kind of like healthy eating patterns over a long sustained period of time, rather than eating a whole load of one food in one go and hoping that will fix a skin problem. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely an overall dietary aspect to consider with everything. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I hear something like oh if you just eat lots of spinach then suddenly I don't know your muscles will get bigger or your hair will grow or it must be exactly the same in the skin world because I remember looking at lots of research um, when I was at university I was quite interested in skin Um, I I think you I think everyone was really it's those sorts of things when you study to become a nutritionist you think what can I do with my diet that's going to fix something that I have and then you very quickly learn the reality that actually you can't fix anything with one type of food but there was a lot of research with fatty acids and you've just mentioned those as well so do you want to delve a little bit into why things like um alpha hydroxy acid are mentioned those sorts of things in the routine Okay, so if we go back to a skincare routine, Mm. then I think um, really the backbone of a good skincare routine needs to be essentially a good sunscreen in the morning, a topical vitamin A at night, Mm -hmm. and then alpha hydroxy acids, which are really good at chemically exfoliating the skin. So your alpha hydroxy acids in skincare are things like your glycolic acids, your lactic acids, your mandelic acids. Mm. And what they do is they remove the upper layer of the upper layer of the skin. So your skin's got a top layer, the epidermis, and then it's got a layer below that, the dermis. But the very top layer, the epidermis, is also got five layers within it. And the very top layer of the very top layer is known as the stratum corneum. And it's about 15 to 20 layers of dead skin cells. And what the alpha hydroxy acids will do is they will essentially remove part of that stratum corneum. So what that will do essentially is chemically exfoliate and result in a much brighter complexion or or the glowing complexion that everybody is looking for these days. It's also really good at shifting pigmentation that's sitting in the very top layer of the skin. So that's the bonus of having an alpha hydroxy acid in your skincare routine. But again, surely not everybody needs to be investing in adding that or or do they in their routine? Well, I think if we look at the absolute basics, everyone can benefit from sunscreen and everyone can benefit from a vitamin A or a retinoid at night. Mm. Once you've got those two nailed, then I think bringing in something like an alpha hydroxy acid alongside an antioxidant serum, they're kind of like the icing on the cake. You know, you're covering all bases by using essentially those four categories of product. Right. Okay. Because there was something quite interesting. When I was pregnant, I remember Mm. being told um, you can't use these products because they contain retinoids in them. Yeah. I I didn't ever quite get to the bottom of exactly why. So perhaps you could explain why retinoids are only meant to be used once you reach your 20s, really, and not not for pregnant women or perhaps younger people. 
Yeah, so, so retinoids are effectively vitamin A compounds. And vitamin A in cream or topical form is really kind of probably one of the most well-studied skincare ingredients we've got. We've got scientific data from the 1970s that shows that retinoids will improve skin cell turnover. They will boost collagen production in the skin. And bear in mind, you will lose 1% per year of your collagen from your mid-20s onwards. Um, And then the third thing they will do is they will also help improve pigmentation as well. The thing with topical retinoids is they can potentially be toxic to a developing embryo or a fetus. Now, whilst most of the studies come from the oral version, because we don't do clinical trials in pregnant women, There are a handful of very small case reports that suggest that using topical vitamin A, there is a theoretical risk of absorption through the skin Mm. into the bloodstream. And then whilst you're pregnant, your blood volume is increased. So the absorption risk is higher that it may cross the placenta and potentially cause harm to a developing baby. So that's the reason why we kind of blanketly say retinoids are not a good idea orally Mm. or topically in pregnancy. Or it's it's just not worth the risk, I think. And you're right, the skin being an organ, things will may be absorbed, and the blood flow. You're you're carrying about fifty percent more fluid when you're pregnant as well. It's it, it's such a huge difference, and everything is um, extremely sensitive. You also hear a lot about uh, vitamin B and E, especially for the skin as well. I mean, would you recommend any products um, containing those two vitamins? Yeah, so vitamin E is an antioxidant. Um, That's often why you find it in a lot of skincare products. It also works very well alongside vitamin C in skincare, which is another antioxidant. What I generally say with vitamin E, so the purpose of it would be to reduce things like damage from pollution, for example. Um, It can also potentially make your sunscreen work a little bit better because it will also help prevent damage from free radicals from ultraviolet light. But vitamin E is quite oily at room temperature. So it's one of those ingredients that I would say, yes, there is use in using it in an antioxidant serum. But I would only use vitamin E as an antioxidant in people that have got dry, very dry, maybe sensitive, or mature or postmenopausal skin. My antioxidant of choice for somebody with normal combination or oily skin would actually be vitamin C, because my concern would be that vitamin E could block your pores and create spots. So that's where I would kind of differentiate the two. But both vitamin C and vitamin E topically can be very, very helpful as antioxidants. Uh, it's fascinating, Angela. And th- this is why people need to see an expert like yourself rather than just reading in, I don't know, magazines or on social media. Just go get lots of skin products with vitamin E in it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I don't think vitamin E is for everyone, um, for sure. And then vitamin, the common vitamin B that you'll find in skincare is niacinamide. Um, and niacinamide, is it's another multi-purpose ingredient. And it's very good at kind of reducing the appearance of pore size. It can reduce oil production. It can also function as an antioxidant. And it's quite good also at improving pigmentation. So that's another one that I would say, if you wanted to add into your routine, you could. But I still would say your basics are your sunscreen, your vitamin A, if you are able to use it, your alpha hydroxy acid and your antioxidant, and then your things like your niacinamide. I think they come in a little bit later on. Okay, I hope everybody is making notes if you are listening right now, because I know I am. (laughs) (laughs) and to make sure I've definitely got my skin routine nailed. Now let's move on to moisturizer because um, they say use it day and night. Yeah, so 
not everybody needs a lot of moisturizer morning and evening and everywhere. So a lot of this does come down to your own individual skin type. But if we look at, at moisturizers in general, moisturizers usually are they're made up of three categories of ingredients. So you've got things like occlusives, um, so things like petrolatum or mineral oil. And the way that they work is you, you smear the moisturizer on your skin and they form a protective barrier. So they prevent water loss from the skin surface. Then you've got a second group of moisturizing agents called emollients. And what they essentially do is they fill in the cracks between the skin cells to create a smoother appearance of the skin. And then your third group is your humectants, so things like hyaluronic acid. And what they do is they bind water from the deeper layers of the skin, plumping the skin up. Now, most moisturizers will contain a combination of humectants and emollients and occlusives. But depending on your skin type, you might want to choose a moisturizer depending on which one is the predominant one. So if your skin is very, very dry or you're eczema prone, you want to go for something that's very high in occlusives. On the other hand, if you've got very oily skin, you're better off leaving the occlusives alone because they're going to block your pores. And you want to go for something like a humectant, like a hyaluronic acid based one instead. So um, a lot of it actually is, is recognizing that not all moisturizers are created equal. It is about your own individual skin's needs. Because, you know, for me, I'm naturally oily skinned. I don't moisturize twice a day. But I have plenty of friends at the other extreme where, you know, if they're not moisturizing a few times a day and they're not layering a moisturizing serum and a moisturizer, their skin feels dry or tight. So, you know, I think a lot of that is, you know, your own skin, people know what their skin is like in terms of how oily it is, or how dry or tight it feels after cleansing. And those are the sorts of things you need to take into account. And is it quite easy to decipher on different products? What type of moisturizer? How do people know? The best thing when you're looking at any skincare product is to look at essentially the top four or five things on the list. Because the way that skincare product packaging is put together is it's listed in order of, of kind of descending concentration. So most skincare products, the first three to five items are what make up the bulk of that item. So if you're looking for, for example, if I was, oily, you know, I'm oily skinned, I'm looking for a moisturizer, I wouldn't want to see petrolatum as one of the top three ingredients. That would not be good for my skin. On the other hand, um, if your skin is quite dry, but you're, you know, you're not that acne prone or anything like that, then things like glycerin, for example, could be very useful to have. So a little bit of it actually is familiarizing yourself with some common skincare ingredients. After you start doing it for a while, you know, if you go to your, your bathroom or you go to your skincare products and just look at the top five names, you'll find that a lot of the same stuff keeps coming up over and over again. If that's too complicated, the simplest way to do it is look at the actual texture or the format of the product. If you've got a thick, greasy, creamy product, chances are it's high in occlusives. But if it's got a light, matte, gel-like texture, it probably is much higher in humectants. So that's the other way to do it is if you're not interested in the chemicals, feel the product feel the texture. You know, if you're dry, you want something creamy. If you're not dry, you could go with something lighter like a gel or a serum. Thank you. That's I think that's so useful because yeah, a lot of the long um the long words, the the different use of language and names, they can be quite intimidating, I think, if you, if you don't know where to start and what you're looking for. If we look at makeup as well, because different makeups have different bases, don't they? They're made with is it mineral foundation or there's different types of things. What do 
how do we decipher it, Angela? I can't even get yeah. to that because there's so much I want to ask. Well, one thing I would say as a, a general rule, and a lot of these are kind of generalizations that I'm making, but mineral makeup can be really good for people that have got sensitive skin. Um, so if you're, you know, you get burning or tingling when you apply products and, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of women do say their skin is sensitive. Mineral makeup can be really helpful. The other place where mineral makeup can be really helpful is if you've got an underlying chronic inflammatory skin condition like rosacea or psoriasis or eczema, because the mineral ones are fairly inert. They're less likely to cause aggravation with your skin or flare up your skin. So that's where I would say the role for mineral makeup is. But as a general rule, I feel like makeup these days gets a gets a little bit of a bad kind of like rep of, you know, if you wear makeup, it'll give you spots. Mm. I think a lot of that comes from like years and years ago, like most makeup was really heavy oil based stage makeup. You know, that's that's not how we use makeup now. Like the technologies have moved on so much since then that the majority of products that you use are unlikely to cause issues with your skin. The key thing, again, though, is, you know, again, look at the textures and the formats. If you're prone to spots, you probably don't want to go for something that's really creamy in nature. On the, You know, you want to go for a mattifying product instead. On the other hand, if your skin is dry, you probably want to go for those slightly thicker bases because it will probably add hydration to your skin. But the key thing with makeup in general is wearing it is not a problem, but it's making sure that you remove it adequately. And this is why the nighttime cleanse is so important, because if you think about it in the morning, you've probably washed your face. You've probably applied a moisturizer, ideally a sunscreen, and then you have put your makeup on top. That's four layers that you've got there. Mm. During the day, your skin is coming into contact with dirt, sweat, grime, pollution, alongside the fact that you've stuck all these layers onto your skin. So I do think that if you're wearing all those layers during the day, it is important that you're double cleansing at night to make sure that you have removed everything thoroughly before you go to bed. So um, I kind of tend to say to people, you know, if you're wearing makeup and sunscreen, step one, use something like a micellar water with a cotton pad, wipe all of that away. And then for your second cleanse, use either a cream cleanser or a foaming cleanser, depending on your preference, to make sure that anything residual has also been washed away. And then you've got a clean base for your nighttime routine to start. Yes, it's, it must be so, so important to ensure that you're getting that correct. And for people that don't know, micellar water, do you want to just divulge why, what it is and why we use it? Yes, no, micellar water, basically, it's another form of, of cleansing, really. And, and the water itself, it's, it's a water-based product. It contains these products called micelles, which are really good at attaching themselves to things like sweat and makeup and breaking them down. Um, they're also quite, they come in lots of different types. They, they're them for sensitive skin, oily skin, but they're a very quick, convenient way of doing that first cleanse. I mean, you know, some people may prefer to just wash their face twice and there's nothing wrong with that. But, I, you know, personally, I find micellar water, if you wear makeup, I wear quite a lot of makeup during the day. I find it's a good way of removing my makeup first. Oh, it's my favorite. One of my favorite times of the day is just removing anything that's been on my face. And you're right, it was the stage makeup because I remember being a teenager and first investing in a MAC lipstick or something I'd use for, for my singing. Because um, I used to obviously be a, a soprano before a nutritionist. And it was so heavy. It was so heavy yeah. that getting it off was a nightmare. I remember I would still wake up no matter how many times I washed my face and I would I would find like bits of orange kind of glued to my cheeks so I think it's just important that we all take a note that you've mentioned as well that sunscreen 
is mm. key. And you said apply the sunscreen after the moisturizer. So what suntan lotion would you say, what factor is a minimum throughout the year should we be using? So ideally, you're looking for what I would say is a broad spectrum sunscreen. So by, what, by that, I mean sunscreen that offers both UVA and UVB protection. It should ideally be, I would say, probably a factor 30 to a 50. And the reason I say that is because most of us grossly underapply our sunscreen. When clinical trials are carried out to measure the effectiveness or the SPF factor of a sunscreen, they're applied at a thickness of two milligrams per centimeter square. What we do in real life, though, is we tend to use more like 0.75 to 0.8 milligrams per centimeter squares because of under application. So what that means is that factor 30 that you think you're putting on, it's probably more like a factor 19. So it's better to go for a higher factor and allow for the fact that you probably haven't used enough of it. And what you're looking to use is about half a teaspoon for the face and neck. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yes, because I think a lot of people just rely on the SPF that they find in their foundation. Whereas I think, as you've just rightly said, the surface area of it, you would need to actually have actual sun lotion as well. Absolutely. And I think the second thing that you said that's quite interesting about SPF and foundation or SPF and moisturizers. The thing is that SPF is only a marker of ultraviolet B protection from sunlight. But UVA, the other ray, is also damaging to the skin. And if anything, that's the ray that causes skin aging. So if you've got a moisturizer with an SPF 30, that tells you about its UVB, but it tells you nothing about its UVA protection or whether there is any at all. So for that reason, it's much better to go for a separate sunscreen. The second reason is because of the amount you would need to hit a factor 30, in actual fact, you would probably never use that much product of moisturizer or foundation on your face. So that 30 again that you think you're getting probably is nowhere near a 30. So it is better to just use that separate sunscreen alongside your moisturizer. Yeah, I think so many people, myself included, until I met you, Anjali, uh, just assumed that the weather in the UK isn't good enough. I'm sure it's fine if I just use the foundation. Yeah. Well, you know now, and hopefully all the listeners do now as well. Yeah, exactly. Because even on a cloudy day, you still get rays of sun going through the face. It's it's so interesting. It could prevent the damaging and the aging. And that's something that I think prevention, perhaps from speaking with you, I'm starting to gather is more useful sometimes than putting something on. Uh, that's true. Because I think one of the problems is once the signs of aging have developed, if they bother you, you are looking at 
more expensive treatments then, which not everybody has access to, which not everybody can afford to try and reverse those changes. So it's always better to make sure that you're, you're taking the steps to reduce what you can rather than do nothing and then hit a certain age and suddenly go, oh my goodness, like I've, I feel like I've aged a lot in the past five years or six years. Mm. And then the treatments really are interventional treatments and they can be quite costly. Yes. And what, what do you make of um, marketed anti-aging products, for instance, because they're, they're quite expensive? Yeah. So with skincare, I think we need to be really clear about what skincare can and can't do. And, you know, essentially, the beauty industry is there to sell to us. It is selling us hope in a bottle. And mm-hmm. in actual fact, you know, when we look at facial aging, for example, the skin aging is only a part of it. It's not just the skin that is changing, but the facial skeleton is remodeling. The fat, the subcutaneous tissue underneath our skin is also changing. And there's no amount of slapping a cream on the skin surface that can actually alter the way that your bone and your skeleton has changed or the fat underneath your skin has changed. So I think it's it's very easy to kind of get sucked into this idea of if I buy X cream with X price tag, it will get rid of my forehead lines or it will get rid of my skin sagging. It's actually very difficult for creams to do that because you have to look at all of the layers of what's going on in the face before you can make that decision, you know? And most skincare doesn't penetrate beyond the upper layer of the upper layer. No, I remember going, um, we were giving a lecture together um, at, I can't remember what event it was, but I remember on your slides when I was watching your presentation, seeing the actual structure of the skeleton then the layer of muscles on top and seeing as we age, how they begin to fall. And it was quite shocking, actually. And you also went into the difference between surgery, you know, should we be turning to surgery? And what what are good kind of non-surgical treatments? That's right. Could you go into a few of those that you mentioned? I remember ultra therapy, chemical peel. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we'll start with ultra therapy, actually. Ultra therapy is actually one of my favorite treatments. And it's one that I've been having every year for the past three or four years now. Oh, well, they look amazing. So this this is going to be my new one. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what it is, but I will tell you the downsides with it as well. Yeah. So our therapy is high intensity frequency ultrasound. And the purpose of it is to tighten the skin of the neck and the jawline and the lower face. And it works essentially by using an ultrasound device to look at the different layers of the skin so you know exactly what layer you're in and then firing sort of high intensity waves through the skin. It feels quite hot at the time when it's taking place um, through the skin surface to essentially create an injury in the deeper layers. And that injury creates a wound healing response in the skin, which promotes collagen and it promotes tightening of that lower part of the face. The treatment itself, um, I think it's a good treatment provided you select the right person for it. So it's the kind of thing where by the time you're in your kind of late 50s or 60s, if the skin has become quite lax around the jawline, it's probably not going to be much good. But if you're, say, in your late 30s onwards, it's probably a good time to start doing it because there hasn't been that much dissent at that stage that you can create a little bit of visible tightening. Now, the treatment itself does actually take about an hour and a half to two hours, and it is painful. 
Um, I will not make any kind of lies about that. It's an uncomfortable treatment to have. When I have it done, I have local anesthetic cream applied to my lower neck and my lower face. I take two paracetamol, I take two codeine, and I take two neurofen, and I I still feel discomfort. So it's um, not for the faint-hearted, is what I would say. Oh, it always seems to be the things that are the most effective are a little bit more difficult to to go through. That does sound painful, though, because chemical peels, they seem a lot more common than than the old therapy. Yeah, so chemical peels will have a different purpose. So ultherapy is specifically for skin tightening and reducing laxity. Chemical peels, on the other hand, are actually just for improving more like skin tone and skin texture and pigmentation. So when you look at chemical peels, there's lots of different types of peels that you can have. Um, But they're largely broken down into very superficial peels superficial peels and then medium and deep peels and the very superficial peels will remove the stratum corneum that very top layer of the top layer so chemical peels like glycolic acid lactic acid mandelic acid you go in you have this stuff painted onto your face it's left on for a couple of minutes and then it's removed your skin will probably be bright red after the treatment but that redness settles down but then over the kind of next few days you get a little bit of mild peeling and shedding as the old skin kind of comes away and the new skin comes through but the downtime is pretty low with those and then the superficial peels will remove most of the epidermis so that top layer a medium depth peel would remove the epidermis and a small part of the dermis the layer below so deeper still so with each one that's deeper there is more recovery time and downtime but it's also more effective so that's the trade-off basically Mm. and then peels and we don't tend to do a lot of those anymore but medium depth peels and superficial peels can be very very good for targeting fine lines pigmentation post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation so staining that you get in the skin after acne or any injury very good at shifting that as well so they're more good for general skin texture and tone rather than tightening I see. Okay, so you've got texture and tone, tightening. And for somebody out there, you said those lucky people that get no problems with their skin. Would you say even people like that would benefit from having something like a peel? Interesting question. So what I would say is if you're, you know, you have great skin and you're just looking for something else you can do just in terms of maintenance, then very superficial chemical peels can be of benefit because it's an accelerated form of chemical exfoliation, basically. You know, you're removing those dead skin cells, you've got the brighter, newer skin coming through. So so yes, it's something that can be done. The only thing I would caveat that with is that your skin cells do turn over every sort of 28 days or so. Your skin cycle is roughly once a month. So often to get the most benefit, you do have to then repeat the treatments monthly. You know, you could do it as a treat, as a one-off, and it would look great. But if you wanted to maintain the results, you would have to maintain the treatments as well. It's like Pandora's box. You open it, you have to... You have to keep going before you know it, you try everything. Because I was asked a lot of questions um, and I didn't know, so I wanted to ask on this podcast about um, laser treatments and microneedling. Because again, you mentioned social media earlier and a lot of influencers are now using and filming them going through these treatments. Yeah, it's taken, you know, in some ways it's demystified the treatments, which is why it's created such an increased appetite and palate for these sorts of things. Because people are now like, oh my God, is that what it involves? that's that's terrible or that's not so bad I could do that so you can see how it's driving the interest but microneedling um, can be a really effective treatment actually for people that have got 
good skin to begin with and just want to help plump and volumize the skin, keeping it looking, again, texture-wise in, in good nick. Because the way that microneedling works um, is essentially it's a device that you use. It's got lots and lots of little needles in it. You come into the clinic. We apply local anesthetic cream to the skin to numb it. That cream is removed in about 30 minutes or so. And then this pen is run back or device is run back and forth, makes lots and lots of little holes or micro injuries to the skin surface. And each one of those micro injuries generates that wound healing response and will create more collagen over time. Microneedling can also be really good for very, very kind of superficial acne scarring. Um, it can be helpful for some mild stretch marks as well. So there's a number of areas where microneedling can be of benefit. And then laser is the next step. There's lots and lots of different types of laser and light devices, depending on what you're trying to do. In general terms, laser can be used for anti-aging. It can be used for pigmentation. It can be used to get rid of acne scars. So it's got lots of functions and purposes, but generally laser is more effective than microneedling. So interesting. Yeah, you see a lot of people going in and having these laser treatments now and and injectables is something we obviously have to touch on because it's the most common thing um, that I think everybody will have heard of. And in fact, was it Superdrug or a big nationwide store that were um, advertising doing Botox in store? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it, it was Superdrug, actually. And um, I think my concern with that remains that we're, we're dumbing down the fact that these are still medical treatments and things can go wrong. And, and whilst things often don't go wrong, the most important thing is you need to know what you're going to do if something does. And I think by doing things like injectables in an environment that is not necessarily a clinical setting or a medical setting, you run the risk of trivializing the procedure. Um, And I think that's a problem because you want people to go into it being fully aware that, you know, for example, with Botox, one in 100 people, you can create a brow drop so that they will have a lopsided eyebrow. That is possible. With fillers, if you have fillers around the eye, there are cases of blindness. We recognize that. So I think that these are medical treatments that should be carried out in a medical setting um, from my point of view. Oh, definitely. And it almost normalizes it too much to almost have an underlying subliminal message that everybody should be doing it. Everyone should be doing it. It's a bit like, you know, buying a hair dye or like buying toothpaste, you know, have a bit of Botox as well. And it's it's, it's not the same thing. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, w- I would like to reiterate to everybody listening that it's not a simple procedure. Is it another Pandora's box where once you start, you have to keep going? I don't think so. I think it can be a slippery slope depending on your own personality type um, is is what I would say. I mean, a lot of people are interested in in both Botox and fillers, and and they've got two separate purposes. Botox generally you would use for treating kind of muscular lines. So Botox is good for particularly forehead lines. It's good for lines around the eye. It's good for those number 11s. Filler, on the other hand, the purpose of that more is to treat kind of sagging or gravitational effects that you're noticing so as we get older we start to get slightly less fat in our face and things do start to descend so you get prominent lines between the nose and the mouth and prominent lines sort of jowling as well that's the the other word I hate that word so filler is is injected underneath the skin with a needle to plump up the areas where volume in the skin has been lost 
And, you know, in terms of the treatments themselves, I think, you know, I have a lot of people that will be like, oh, I've got a really important event. You know, I've got my sister's wedding next year. I really want to make sure that my skin is looking great and I'm doing all of these things. And then they, they go away, they have the treatments done and you don't see them for a long time because they're quite happy with what they had done and they're OK with it. And then you've got another group of people that they absolutely love the results. And then they're like, oh, my God, it's worn off. I don't feel like I look the same because it's worn off. And then they will be the people that will be back fairly frequently to have their treatments done. So with Botox, it wears off on average roughly about every three months. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think it depends on your personality. I mean, I'm 40 now. I've been having Botox intermittently since I was about 36, 37. And I'm quite intermittent with it. I might do it like once a year or twice a year. I don't feel the need to do it regularly. But equally, if you don't do it regularly, the effects of it will wear off. Yes, I think that's the most interesting fact about it is getting the balance between how frequently you should be getting it or spacing it out. So it's quite refreshing to actually hear your point of view on that. It's definitely something I would be open to considering. I think... um, it was very scary. There was a time when all of these treatments seemed absolutely terrifying. But now because of qualified experts like yourself and people that are trained, and we seem to have more research, it does seem to be more accessible. One thing before I move on to questions from our listeners, is lip fillers that I wanted Mm. to ask you about, because I think I, I hear about people go popping to their local dentist to get them done. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. So lip fillers are, they're not prescription medications. They are seen as medical devices. So you don't have to be a a doctor or a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon to inject lip filler. Um, So dentists inject, nurses will inject. And I think as long as you're a medical professional, it's probably fine. Because the bottom line is, you know, if you think about a dentist, they they have studied the head and neck anatomy in pretty great detail to be able to inject around the mouth. So I would have no concerns about a dentist doing lip filler. But my bigger concern, and I think generally not just me, but in the aesthetics industry as a whole, the bigger concern is beauticians without any medical degree or medical training that are injecting because things can go wrong with lip filler as well. Um, And I think it needs to be seen as a medical procedure that is done by a medical professional. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Anjali, there's so much I want to ask you. I feel like I've only skimmed the surface of all the questions that are out there, but I have to take those ones from our listeners. And Hayley has actually mentioned a good point we should have touched on earlier. She said that like you and I, Anjali, she works in central London and Mm. she is worried about the air pollution. So what specifically can she do to help with it? So what product perhaps could you, um, instead of recommending one, just what should she be putting on? Yeah, so in in generic terms, what I would say here is pollution causes damage by free radicals. So using antioxidants to mop up those free radicals is absolutely key. So from a skincare point of view, if your skin is combination or if it's oily, then I would go for a vitamin C serum. Um, But on the other hand, if your skin is very dry or very sensitive, go for a vitamin E serum. And what I would do is I would cleanse. I would use your antioxidant serum I would moisturize and then I would sunscreen in that order. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Hayley. I hope you've written all of that one down. Um, Farah has asked, I'm thinking about getting non-surgical treatments, but not sure, oh, what credentials the salon should have before I commit? That's a very good question. It is. And it's such a tricky one to answer as well, because there is so much debate in the industry at the moment as well about who should be doing what and who is qualified to do Mm -hmm. what. What I would say is there are lots of people in the UK that do inject and can inject. Um, 
a good starting point would be looking at one of the kind of organizations or voluntary registers. So if, for example, they are a consultant dermatologist or plastic surgeon. So in that case, they would be a member of the British Cosmetic Dermatology Group or the plastic surgery groups are BAPS, B-A-A-P-S and BAPRAS. So mm-hmm. you can look at their, theirs. Other than that, there are voluntary registers like Save Face, and they will have a list of people that are accredited. But I think as a general rule, you, you probably want to take a little bit of recommendation or word of mouth. You probably want to do a little bit of your own research. And you probably also, you know, I think these days you want to make sure that the person that's treating you is the right person for you. Because lots of people are able to do treatments, but what you want to make sure is do they engage with you in the right way? Are they the kind of person that you trust or that you feel comfortable with? Because it's really nerve wracking having these treatments done for the first time if you don't know what to expect. Of course, uh, it can be terrifying, I think. Um, the outcome, we're talking about your face and your skin and you don't, you definitely don't want to get that wrong. And Ella has said, and this is something a lot of people again will want to know, especially, well, women in particular, my period plays havoc with my skin. So hormones. Um, is there any hope for me at that time of month? It's really tricky. So first of all, I would say that about 50% of women, up to, well, up to 50% of women can get hormonal flares of acne in particular in the second half of their cycle or the run up to their period. So it's a surprisingly common thing. The thing is that I've seen like I've seen lots of like articles and people suggest, oh, well, you know, all that means is you should really up the ante in your skincare and your skincare routine and start using more acids in the second half of your cycle to kind of compensate for that. The thing is, because your skin cycle is every kind of 28 days or so, often the, the spot that's forming or coming to a head around the time of your period, it probably started in the earlier part of your cycle. So mm. it's very hard to get your skincare to fit with your cycles from a, a logical point of view. What can you do? I mean, I think that there are skincare ingredients that you can be consistent with in your routine, particularly if you are prone to breakouts. And those skincare ingredients would include things like benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, tea tree oil, niacinamide. All of those can be quite helpful. So if you haven't incorporated those ingredients into your routine, you should probably look for cleansers or toners or moisturizers that contain them. Yeah, no, very, very good advice. Thank you, Anjali. So that does move us on to the fact or fiction round. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, so if you can answer fact or fiction to the following. Okay, expensive products are better than cheaper. Um, That is absolute fiction. (laughs) Brilliant. Sleeping in your makeup is totally fine. Okay, I just doing it once or twice is totally fine. Doing it all the time is very bad. So I'm going to go with fiction only because I don't think most people would never take their makeup off over long periods of time. Okay, well answered. Hot showers are good for your skin. Um, I would say probably fiction. Um, the hotter the shower, the more likely it is to create irritation to your skin, but also promote water loss as well and dry your skin out. So lukewarm to warm. There you go. Makeup with SPF is the same as suntan lotion. Uh, so that's fiction. <laughs> Easy. Yep. Yep. Cover that one. Chocolate is linked with acne. Oh, God, the nuances on this one. No. I'm, I'm going to go with fiction and I'm going to caveat it with there is some emerging data 
in some groups of people or people that are susceptible that potentially sugar and dairy may aggravate your skin. But that is not the case for everybody. So cutting out chocolate is not going to be the solution to treating acne. (laughs) Who can cut out chocolate as well? Tough one. Um, Having a base tan is like an SPF. No, so that that is fiction. By the time your skin has tanned, that tan is a sign of DNA damage to your keratinocytes or your skin cells. So base tan is bad. Okay, facial expressions can reduce wrinkles. That's fiction. The more expressive you are, the chances are the more likely you're going to start getting lines. I know, I'm pretty doomed. I'm way too expressive on my face. Um, Skin colour doesn't impact the skincare products you should buy. That's fiction. Um, there can be a difference, but oh, that's a, that's a very tricky one to do again with that nuance. I, I'm going to say, okay, no, actually, I'm going to say it's fiction because I think that you do need to be careful with certain issues in darker skins versus lighter skins. However, most skincare products you buy over the counter that you would just purchase, they have been taste, uh, tested to high regulatory standards, so they should be fine. It's only if you're not using them the way that you're supposed to, or if you're using prescription agents, you need to be a bit more careful. Brilliant. Uh, daily exfoliation keeps your skin young. Fiction. Um, exfoliation is good for your skin, but you don't need to be doing it every day. It does depend on your skin type. Oily skins can probably get away with it every day, but dry, sensitive skins, you don't need to be exfoliating every day. And having no skincare regime will accelerate aging. For your average person, that is fact, yes. Um, Because we do know that 80 to 90% of skin aging is because of the sun. And if you're not protecting yourself from the sun, your skin will age prematurely. Anjali, that was one of the most informative and fast fact or fiction rounds we have done. (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much that does unfortunately wrap up the episode but we will finish with our food for thoughts today and I think I'd just like to start by just saying that it's so clear from talking to you again um, in more depth this time that there is no miracle product that can transform your skin and it's just too easy to be be lured in by by social media and and these amazing claims and before and afters but it really maybe does come down to a simple routine and one thing that really stuck with me from what you said today is that those people out there that have the perfect skin or different colored skin that we have to embrace that we're all unique but we can you know we can eat well and we can try and reduce stress and we can do our best in our life really to make a little bit of an impact but it's it's being realistic If you could leave our listeners with a take-home message, Anjali, what would that be? I would say probably consistency over a long period of time with a skincare routine. Don't chop and change. The temptation is using something for a week, throwing it out and saying it didn't work. You do need to be consistent with your, your skincare patterns and routines and at least try something for about six to 12 weeks before you sack it off. Yeah, definitely. And I would also say to everybody listening, Anjali has an incredible book called The Skincare Bible, which is literally a Bible. And I would highly recommend having a look at that if you want to learn more about what to do for your skin, because a lot of what Anjali said today is broken down in the book. And if people want to find out more, where can they go? Okay, um, so um, I'm on Instagram at Anjali Marto, and I'm practicing at 55 Harley Street. There we go. And I have been to see her there. I had a mole check, actually, which was fascinating. Um, 
it's something I'd always wanted to do and I saw a friend visit you Alice and I think that's also something I should have mentioned on today's episode but if anybody needs any more information check that out Anjali thank you so much for coming on Food for Thought oh thank you for having me If you enjoyed this episode, you're going to absolutely love what's coming next week. So make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do, if you have the time, leave a five-star review. It does help this podcast get out there. We want to be able to reach more people, help more people, and maybe even perhaps reach higher highs in the charts. For more information about my nutrition clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit nutrition.com. And you can always follow me at nutrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.